This is a Federal News Network podcast. We know chief information security officers have a big job in the White House's zero trust cybersecurity strategy. But what about chief data officers? Well, it turns out they're more involved than you might think. For the latest, we turn to Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, what have you learned about what chief data officers are supposed to be doing for Zero Trust? Well, data is one of the five pillars under the Zero Trust strategy, and data teams are supposed to be working with their security counterparts to develop data categories and security rules so that they can automatically detect and block unauthorized access the sensitive information. That's a big push under this broader zero trust strategy. And at first blush, it might seem like chief data officers would be hampered by the move to zero trust. After all, the strategy is all about governing access to data using least privilege principles and CDOs are trying to share data across enterprises. But in reality, these leaders are working with their counterparts to deploy these data protections, catalog and tag data. That's a common goal for both of these teams. Shmendra Paul is Chief Data Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. He said CDO teams and CISO teams are collaborating more closely than they would have five or 10 years ago. Sharing and safeguarding have always been two sides of the same coin. And you can always do more sharing if you build in place better safeguards, right? And then there's a natural imperative to introduce automation on the safeguarding side to accelerate sharing and to improve safeguarding. And so, you know, there's a virtuous cycle here between sharing and safeguarding. And really, I I don't sense tension between the CISO community, the CDO community at all. And that's Shmendra Paul of the Veterans Affairs Department. Justin, what should we expect to see come out of these collaborations? Well, the White House's strategy requires uh, CDOs and CISOs to come together and create a joint committee to develop a zero-trust data security guide for agencies to use. And in addition to the guide, the strategy calls on the committee to identify and support pilots for enterprise data categorization approaches. Big reason for those pilot programs is because there's not really a great way to categorize data across enterprises today, certainly not at federal agencies. And the strategy admits that this is going to be challenging for agencies. It's going to be a challenging part of this this broader strategy. And so from the White House perspective, cybersecurity teams need to forge those good relationships with the data teams at their agencies. Carol House is Director of Cybersecurity and Secure Digital Innovation at the White House National Security Council. To effectively implement a cybersecurity program, you need that data, just like for managing other programs and systems. You have to be able to understand really what's happening on your networks, what's on your networks, uh, what are their vulnerabilities, what, like, how is it being targeted. And is this actually happening at the agency level? Well, Schmender Paul says the VA is working on an approach to consistently tag met- metadata across multiple legacy systems and, and build what they're calling an enterprise data catalog. And this will ensure that data across the VA is more discoverable, but also ensure that there are the right access rules in place around that data. And a big goal for CDOs is ensuring data quality. Paul says that's not that different from a CISO's goal to ensure data integrity. I'm of a certain age. I can remember that old saw, right? It's 3 a.m. Paraphrasing, do you know where your data is? The enterprise data catalog is such an important aspect of, of having that understanding in an actionable way right, of the location of data, what the metadata is associated with it, to be able to understand and make real the promise of blending uh, access decisions and discovery decisions across the application, 
the data and the network layers that's at the heart of zero trust architecture. I also remember that ad, and I was the one who was out at 3 a.m. in those days. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Any incentive for these data teams to take this whole zero trust thing under the umbrella with everything else they've got to do? Well, it remains to be seen whether they take on those broader incentives for data security, but you know, Paul described how support for a major, major data initiative at the VA was dependent on good security practices. It's, it's called the Common Operating Platform. It's aimed at integrating health and benefits data across the agency so veterans can, of course, more easily access health care and benefits. And Paul described how they needed to build good rules-based access in from the beginning. You know, kind of going forward, we've built the technical support for greatly enhanced rules-based access. We won't have to necessarily re-engineer what we've done. It's been critically important to the success of the initiative that we could reassure folks that it's appropriate, secure, ethical access. At VA, our data is our superpower, right? And by integrating it this way, we're unlocking that superpower. And once again, Schmendra Paul, the chief data officer at the VA. Justin, what other agencies have got this level of involvement of their data people and data programs? Well, it looks like at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, they are putting together kind of that integrated team. Rob Brown is chief technology officer at USCIS. And he said over the last two years, there's been a big push at the agency to aggregate data into what tech folks call a data lake house, but essentially getting all your your data across the agency into a into a discoverable place and, and tagging it. And last summer, USCIS also established a zero trust working group within its Office of Information Technology to to include all the other sub organizations that fall below that. The zero trust working group has been measuring what they have in place right now against CISA's draft zero trust maturity model. And Brown said they're now moving forward with the next measures. The next step right now is we've been meeting with a lot of industry and a lot of vendors to get a better finger on the pulse, educating the folks within the Zero Trust Working Group. So we understand really how some of these tools and technologies can fill some of the gaps and ideally even replace and consolidates some of the disparate tooling that we do have in place today. And again, that's Rob Brown, Chief Technology Officer at USCIS, talking about their Zero Trust Working Group. And by the way, all these folks were speaking at an April 21st event hosted by FCA Bethesda. And when it comes to data that the data officers are helping the chief information security officers deal with. Are they primarily, did you get the sense, talking about just the network and log data where cybersecurity tends to focus, or does it also include the data assets of the agency that need protection? In the case of VA, of course, all these millions and reams of medical data. It needs to be both under the zero trust strategy. You know, obviously you do need that log data, and we know agencies have big gaps there. The White House Office of Management and Budget has directed agencies to improve how they they uh, keep log data so that they can investigate cyber incidents and, and uh, hopefully deter them in the future. But the zero trust strategy is all dependent on ensuring that you have the right identity measures in place for your people and your applications so that they are accessing the data they're allowed to access and, and nothing more. And an attacker can't come in and use that access to move across the the system. So it needs to be kind of this holistic look at data. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, 
And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.